If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, if you'd be helped by using one of the Pew Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to page 984 uh, in those Bibles. You'll find our reading there. We're going to spend our time this morning in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. We've been making our way through Matthew's Gospel and doing so at a pretty good clip, I would, I would say. Uh, but I, I sense uh, in myself and, and maybe even in some of you, it's time to take a brief break and and talk about some other issues. And so this morning we come to uh, the issue of the one another's of Scripture. The one another's. There are 59 or so, depends on who you ask, instances in the New Testament in which we are told how we are to interact with one another. And there's a beautiful picture that's painted by each one of those commands of a community that has been transformed by the blood of Jesus to be a countercultural sort of colony of heaven here on earth. That is what the church is to be. And it will be of no surprise to you that if there are 59, we're not going to cover each and every one of them in a month's time, but we are going to cover several of them. And as we turn to Colossians 3, we find that we have a three-for-one bargain. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. As you turn there, this is what Paul the Apostle writes. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray before we begin. Let's all bow and pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for its clarity. Thank You that You have taught us in the Lord Jesus how we are to live with one another. And so we pray that as a result of hearing from Your Word that You would change and transform our church that in the areas in which we are doing well, that we would continue to grow, and in the areas in which we have repenting to do, uh, that you would make that clear to us, and that your Spirit would graciously move in us to transform us into the image of Jesus. Where We need your help for these things, and so we ask for it now in Christ's name. Amen. In Curvatus in Se... That's what each and every one of us is. Incurvatus in se. Well, what in the world does that mean? That's a fancy Latin way of saying that we are curved in towards ourselves. Incurvatus in se. The phrase was first used by St. Augustine and later picked up by Martin Luther to describe what the human heart is like, certainly before trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, before we have been made aware of our sin and guilt, before God's holiness, before we have 
confessed our sins and asked God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to forgive us, we are in crevatus in say. Our desires, our dreams, the trajectory of our lives is centered, we might even say obsessed, with our self. We are a self-obsessed people. But sadly, I must confess, and I think all of us must confess, that at times this inward curvature of our hearts displays itself even after we've come to faith in Jesus. We struggle with the scar tissue of being self-oriented. And so sadly, I have to say, the place in which I find myself most often curved inwardly is when I walk into the church. When I step foot into the church on Sunday morning with a desire to be served rather than to serve. When I come into the church on Sunday morning worried most of all about what I will get out of it rather than what I will put into it. When I come into the church desiring my own preferences over and against others. I don't think that's just me, is it? Curved inwardly towards myself. And if that is the case, then it stands to reason that what God intends to do in the Gospel is to straighten us out so that now we point outside of ourselves, so that we are others-oriented. And that is the Gospel pattern that we find all throughout the New Testament. Most clearly, we find it in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, in which John tells us that the pattern is God's own love for us causes a spring to well up in our hearts of love for God that then issues in love for others. That's why there are so many commands in the New Testament about how we are to interact with each other. And what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter 3 is he is seeking to orient us in the Christian life towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul tells us in this passage is that our new identity as God's chosen ones must be lived out or manifested in others-oriented community. I want you to see this morning from Colossians chapter 3 that everything that you do at First Baptist Church, ideally, biblically, should be oriented not to yourself, but to those around you. That's Paul's focus here in Colossians 3. Now there is a disadvantage to just jumping into Colossians chapter 3 and having not done any work in the letter at all. I want to give you just a brief overview of the letter. One of my friends and I are reading the the letter of Paul to the Colossians together and benefiting from it when we can get together. In the first chapter and a half, what Paul is doing is establishing the massive greatness and weightiness of Jesus. You cannot have a higher view of Jesus than the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is greater, Paul says, than anything or anyone in creation. Why? Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and, yes, for him. 
And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, He is the head of the body of the church. There is no one more important, more glorious, more preeminent in the church than Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Among those who have raised from the dead, or will be raised from the dead, rather, Jesus is supreme. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And then Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21, and you. Here's the massive scope of the Gospel. What is God doing in the death of Jesus? He is making everything new. Verse 21, and you. Small as you are in the grand scheme of things, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed, here's the key, if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you stick with Jesus, if indeed you don't turn to the right or to the left, if you stick with Jesus. And so the theme of the entire letter comes in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now there's application to be made right there. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Do you mean to tell me that it's not as though I believe on Jesus and then it's time to move on to other things? You know, the real stuff, like how I'm supposed to live. No. Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. The way on, the way towards growth in the Christian life is the very same way in. It's Jesus rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. And here in chapter 3, Paul is giving us a paradigm, a framework for how to live a life that honors Christ. He says in the first four verses, if you have died with Jesus, if you have been raised with Jesus, then fix your heart and your mind on Jesus. And as you're doing that, verses 5 to 11, put to death, kill, crucify the old self. The patterns of sin in which you once walked before you believed in Jesus. He finally brings it to bear in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Who you were, if you are in Christ, has died verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Not that it has been renewed. It has certainly, but it is being renewed presently, continuously in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put to death those things that represent who you once were and put on those things that now represent Jesus. And what is so fascinating to me, so gripping to me in verses 12 to 17 is that Christian life for Paul cannot be lived absent the church. I want you to see that. It cannot be lived absent the church. There is no New Testament Christianity that consists of me and Jesus. New Testament Christianity is only and always and ever will be us and Jesus. How are we to display kindness, humility, meekness, patience? How are we to bear with one another and forgive one another if we're never with one another? You see? And the structure I see in verses 12 to 17 has everything to do with the movement of Paul's commands. Verses 12 through 14, Paul's commanding us put on, put on, put on. 
Verses 15 and 16, we're commanded to let, to allow something to happen. And then in verse 17, we're commanded to do something. And I just want to walk through these three commands of Paul, these big commands of Paul as we make our way through the text. The first thing that Paul commands you and I, if we have believed in Jesus, we have trusted in Jesus, is to put on Christ-like character. Put on Christ-like character. The, the imagery here is really of a wardrobe change. Put on. Put on some new clothing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are to put on clothing that suits us. Now I'm sure each and every one of us puts some attention into what we wear because what we wear displays something of who we are. So I think that's probably extreme. Well, just wait. Men, until you put something on that your wife has bought you and you walk out of the bedroom and she looks at you and says, oh, that's so you. Or that's really not you. Maybe it was you 20 years ago, but it's certainly not you now, right? The way that we dress displays something of who we are. It's a mode of self-expression. And so Paul is telling us here in verse 12, put on clothing that suits who you are as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who you are if you are part of the church. You are part of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation across all generations who are referred to as His chosen ones. There's no use arguing about it. That's what the Bible says. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. Back in Deuteronomy, as Moses is addressing the people of Israel, he says to them, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord loves you because He loves you. Why does God love you? Because He loves you. Quit fiddling about. That's why. He loves you because He loves you. But what Paul's doing here is he's taking all of these identity markers of Israel and he's saying now Israel, the new Israel, Jews and Gentiles alike grafted in are God's chosen ones. Set apart for Him and loved dearly. And when I understand that that is who I am in Christ, then and only then will I change my clothes. I will put on compassionate hearts. That inclination towards mercy rather than aggression. Kindness. You know kindness when you see it. The sweetness that drips off of a man or a woman who treats you with kindness. Humility. The very attitude of Jesus that caused him to lay aside his own prerogative and to take on humanity in order to live and die in our place. Meekness, gentleness, and patience. This is what we are supposed to wear. Now, I don't think that it's just the ladies. Men, you can identify with this as well, that when you put on a new outfit and you know you look pretty good in it, there's a certain kind of step that you walk with 
There's a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of swagger that's indicative of wearing new clothing. So Paul here goes not only from this is who you are, so this is what you should put on, but now having put those things on, this is how you are to act. And here's our one another's. Bearing with one another. See, it's all very abstract, isn't it? Put on humility, gentleness, kindness, meekness. Okay, I got that. But when the rubber meets the road, what does it look like to have put those things on? What does it actually mean in practice to have put those things on? You might expect this really high barrier to entry. Okay, if I'm going to wear those things, then I've got to do this, and this is really difficult to do. But look at the way that it ends with a whimper in verse 13, bearing with one another. Putting up with one another. (laughs) Tolerating one another. That sounds like a Christian virtue to you. Someone asks you in, in, in the, the, the middle of the grocery store, well, how's it going over there at First Baptist with that new pastor? And you say, you know what? We're putting up with him. Praise God and thank you so much. <laughs> we tolerate him. Speaking of the grocery store, you know that, that, that sort of that, that feeling when you see someone down the aisle that you know you don't want to talk to and you kind of, and you turn around real quick because you forgot to pick up the milk. No, you didn't. you got two gallons in your cart right now. It's that you can't tolerate the person. Let's bring it a little closer to home. You ever walk in the lobby and see that person across the lobby way and go, ooh, I'm going to drop my kids off downstairs because if I go that way, If I understand that God has brought me into this community of His chosen people, and I'm going to be a person of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, then, by God's grace, I'll put up with you. And you'll put up with me. How realistic is that? How wonderful is that? There's a realization that we won't all like each other perfectly. We won't all get along absolutely perfectly. There will be conversations within the church, the community of God's people, in which you feel like you just want to run from. In Christ, we tolerate each other. Alice used to say all the time, and you would crack people up, there was a song that we would sing that we would sing to each other and we would say, I'm so happy you're part of the family of God. And he'd say, you know, we ought to change the lyrics to say, I'm surprised you're part of the family of God. You sing that to me as quickly as I'd sing it to you, but we're going to put up with each other. And what's the flip side? If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So what happens when I'm bearing with you and you sin against me? What is my immediate instinct if I understand who I am in Christ? Grudges, resentment, bitterness, gossip, self-pity, tell somebody else about why I'm upset with you or how bad you are, Telltale sign, you don't get the gospel. Neither do I. My first instinct, if I understand who I am in Christ, when I have a complaint against another, and I will, and I do, is to forgive. Why? Because the measly offense that I am 
grudgingly holding on to by my brother or sister pales in comparison to the entire span of sin that I will commit in a lifetime that Jesus has graciously died for so that I might be forgiven. It is the height of hypocrisy to withhold forgiveness and yet claim to be forgiven. How are we going to act with one another as we put on Christ-like character? We're going to tolerate each other and forgive each other. How realistic. And above all else, verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The pictures of a sport coat that just sets the outfit off entirely. Put these things on, and as you do, you will forgive one another and you will bear with one another. Put on. Number two, let. Let Christ rule and dwell among you, verses 16 and 17. I'm sorry, verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let dominate. Let it be the governor. The word came to be used of an umpire. Now we have to be reasonable. Paul didn't know anything about baseball in the first century, but I think the umpire illustration is really good. A friend of mine invited me to a Pirates game. I said, you know what? I'll only go to a Pirates game if they play the Cardinals. My dad's team was the Cardinals. He saw Stan Musial play. Well, don't you know the Cardinals were in town last week, so I went to the ballpark. Who rules and reigns over the baseball game at any given point in time? The umpire. You see men try to dispute that from time to time. They don't last very long in the stadium, do they? Who rules and reigns? Who calls the balls and strikes? The umpire. And here Paul tells us to allow the peace of Christ. That is not the objective peace that you and I experience with Jesus having been reconciled to God and experiencing peace with God through what Jesus has done. This is the subjective experiential peace that Paul envisions to be part and parcel of life in a community of believers in the church. Peace. What is the governor on the car of First Baptist Church? What rules and reigns when we gather together? Paul says it ought to be the peace of Christ. If I understand, again, what Jesus has done for me, that He has made peace then peace will govern the way that I interact with you. I mean, just ask yourself the question within the past two to five years if all of your conversations have been governed, compelled by the peace of Jesus. Does that sidebar conversation in the lobby flow from a heart that has been governed by a desire to maintain peace? Does the gossip you may or may not have engaged in flow from a heart that is being governed by the peace of Jesus? I mean, loved ones, this is a wonderful question for us to ask one another anytime we're interacting with one another. Is what I'm about to say coming from a place of a desire to maintain peace and unity, or is what I'm about to say or ask or do Flowing from a desire to be in the know or to be right, to stir up division, 
to hold grudges, to criticize, fairly or unfairly. Now certainly there is real sin that must from time to time be called out, but by and large, called to peace. What a beautiful community that, that creates. Not only are we allow, supposed to allow the peace of Christ to rule, but we're, we're called to allow the Word of Christ to dwell. And in so doing, we will teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love what N.T. Wright says on this passage. He says, quote, The church is to be stocked with good teaching as a palace is filled with treasure. Again, I say to you, we do not need less Bible. We need more Bible. The church is to be stocked, to be loaded, to be the 90s Indians with good teaching as a palace is filled with treasure. We ought to have an embarrassment of riches of those of us who are able to preach and to teach the Bible to each other. I've been so challenged this week in verse 16 that the evidence, the evidence that the Word of Christ dwells in me richly, that is, the Word about Christ, the Gospel Word, the evidence that it dwells in me richly is not how much I read it. It's not how much I study it. It's not the amount of books I have on my bookshelf, and I have many. It is, however, whether or not it flows out of me, understand this, in song. Fascinating, isn't it? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you teach and admonish one another in song. I want you to see how weighty this command is. Turn back with me to chapter 1 and verse 28. This is something of a target for me and for our pastoral team as we think about the ministry that the Lord has given us here at First Baptist, what are we trying to do? Verse 28, chapter 1, Him that is Jesus we proclaim. What do we preach? We preach Christ. Him we proclaim, here we go, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature or fully grown, complete in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The language here is identical to our passage in Colossians 3. Admonishing, that is warning and teaching, that is imparting positive Bible teaching. We are to do that with one another, even as the Apostle Paul placed his entire life on. We are to do that as we gather. So listen, guys. Absent any sort of particular that I want to call out, I'm not going to look at anybody. This is why I'm so adamant about punctuality in the worship service. 
Because I need, as much as you need, to be taught the Bible by you as you sing. Dead men don't sing. N.T. Wright says this is why Christianity is the only religion that sings. Because we have something to sing about. I need, after a week of hearing the messages of the world, to chart my own course, to make my own life, to exalt myself, to work really hard and be repaid for it. I need to be recalibrated by the good news that I'm not good enough, but Jesus is. That's why our songs contain that content, and that's why I need you to sing that not only to God, but to me. I love how strong we are on community. I love it. It's one of the things that caused me to fall in love with this church early on. I love that some of us are late, not because we are flying into the parking lot 20 minutes late, but because we love one another. We're talking to one another in the lobby, but let's take it to the next level. And let's infuse our conversation, indeed our singing, with the word of the gospel so that we might be encouraged. What you do here matters. Let Christ rule and dwell in you. Finally, verse 17, we have to bring this to a close. Do everything in the name of Jesus. I take this to be a summing up of what Paul has previously said. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I am, I think as, as everyone in our culture is, getting used to the idea that now that everything's public, there is no longer really a divide between my personal life and my private life and my public life and my working life. People get fired from their jobs for things that they've done in their personal lives. Because there's an understanding that all of life is lived in representation of a school or a company or cause. And here Paul's just helping us catch up by saying, listen, you're a believer in Jesus. There's no separation of life. Whatever you do, whatever you do, specifically in the church, in word, the way that I teach and admonish and exhort others, indeed, the way I walk into the building, everything is done representing Jesus. So understand, as your heart seeks to turn itself back into itself, that the only right way to represent Jesus within His church, within His body, is to, by grace, take that heart and straighten it out. So, wow. I pulled in here this morning going, me, me, me. But by God's Spirit and by His grace, I'm going to leave here saying, you, you, you. 
I'm going to put up with you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to sing to you. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing for me. Let me tell you something. This, this all sounds... This all sounds a little bit um, insular. It sounds almost like, okay, Mike, I hear what you're saying, I get what Paul's saying, but where's the outreach in this? And I want to tell you that I don't know anybody who would encounter a community that exemplifies this. who wouldn't be magnetically attracted to the one who makes it all possible. This is a gospel issue. Straightened out, others-oriented as a result of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, there is no sense in which You have united us to Yourself through Christ, but not to one another. Forgive us, forgive me for those times that we have come seeking what we can get rather than what we can give. Seeking to be served rather than to serve. Our hearts at times are so deceptive that we even confess to you some of the times that we've come to serve, we've done so out of a desire to be praised for it. Bent in on ourselves. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit to remind us so clearly of all that Jesus has done for us that we would have the inclination just supernaturally to be more concerned with others than ourselves. Father, would You help us? Would You help us to bear with one another? Would You help us to forgive each other? Would You help us to sing to one another? Would you make us an increasingly accurate portrait of the beautiful new community you are creating in Christ? And would you cause those around us who have yet to trust in Jesus to see the way that we treat each other and say, oh my goodness, there must be something to this Jesus thing. Otherwise, that group wouldn't agree on anything. Lord, we need Your help. We repent. We cry out for Your mercy. In Jesus' precious name, Amen.